I want to know people's backstory and I want to know if they have a chip on their shoulder or not. Because a chip on the shoulder can drive someone's sales career through the roof. You know, obviously for me, I, I think that's I had a chip on my shoulder that's driven me to to try to be more successful. So I always like to ask people like what motivates you? What drives you? Welcome to another episode of the Peak Performance Selling Podcast where we interview top sellers and sales leaders to learn the different tips, tricks, and mental strategies that they use to create sustainable peak performance. Let's get rolling. Today, we've got Tiki Biswal joining us, who has been working in software sales for over 10 years and at this point considers himself a sales lifer. He's been really helping fuel the rocket ship growth of HubSpot since 2013 of the early days and has worked in a bunch of different segments across the business, all focusing on sales, working with our channel partners, our small business team, all the way up into now managing a mid-market team, really helping drive some phenomenal growth, even as we've gone through this crazy COVID madness. He moved out of the individual contributor role about three years ago in 2017, and has really spent a lot of time focusing on how does he build and grow sales teams. He's been rep of the year at HubSpot. He's made President's Club as a rep and as a manager. And he's a nasty tennis player. I've played soccer against him, FIFA, but even a tennis coach as well, while crushing his numbers at HubSpot. So really excited to learn from Tiki today. Thanks for joining us, Tiki. Thank you so much for having me. Excited for the conversation. I am super excited to learn from you as I've got a chance to spend a good bit of time with you over the years, but haven't really been able to unpack how you think, how you operate, and how you work in this sales environment, whether it's as a rep or as a manager. So I think you're going to have a bunch of really great wisdom to to share with the community. So I'm really excited. The first place I always love to start with folks is understanding a little bit of your sales journey. And how did you end up getting into sales in the first place? And did you ever think you were going to be a sales lifer when, when you got into it? I realized after looking back on my career that my first two jobs in college No one would tell me there were sales jobs, but there were sales jobs. So my first job, I was 15. My dad was working at UConn and he got me a job at the UConn Foundation, which is a fancy way of saying I called alums and I asked them for donations. And so I remember my buddy Josh and I started there. We were best friends, 15 years old. He's now a uh, accomplished attorney. So he he didn't go the sales route. But immediately within a week, Josh was like, I'm miserable. And I was like, why are you miserable? And he's like, this is so boring. And I'm like, Josh, I talked to like 40 different people tonight that like went to UConn and you know, they were nice to me and this is great. So I, I, I never realized until now that that's a sales job, calling people, asking for donations. And so funny story there is Josh and I worked there for a while and um, they realized that I had a knack for it. And they were like, hey, do you want to be a shift manager? And I was like, I'm in high school. <laughs> and so they were like, oh, okay, never mind. So that was my first kind of exposure to it. And then um, when I started uh, as an actual college student at UConn, I became a tour guide. And again, no one's going to tell you that's a sales role. It's a sales role. You know, you're meeting a bunch of different personalities and, and you're selling UConn at every step of that tour. And I remember I had um, a calculus exam coming up one year and this girl came up to me in like the calculus tutoring center and she was like, Oh my God, we need to take a picture together. And my mom still has our tour photo 
on our fridge and she asked me if I run into you on campus. And I'm like, mom, there's 30,000 students at UConn. So um, that's, that's the short story of how I got into it. And then I ended up moving to Boston after UConn and getting into the tech sales scene, worked at Experian for a bit, and then a company called WordStream, and then finally HubSpot. And, and the rest is kind of history. That's amazing. I, I love this. Got into sales, but didn't know I was getting into it. As I talk to different universities, nonprofits, I, I usually have to tell them at the start of a call, like, I'm going to call what you guys do selling. You don't like to call it that. You're going to call it communications or admissions or donor relations or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, you're all selling something because we're all in business. We've all got to generate revenue to stay in business. And so what a cool way to, to kind of get into it, though, especially on the donor front, I think it is really interesting as it's almost one of the hardest sales is to ask somebody for money for nothing in return. Opposed to now where you're like, oh, you get a product, you get a software, you get something to just ask for money for nothing in return has always been a, a really fascinating thing for me, aside from the fact that realizing like, yeah, people just want some some intrinsic feeling for yeah. what they're using their dollars for. But I'm curious, like, have you seen any of that experience that you lean on or, or think about as you run into management or as you run into sales today? I think it. It taught me in every interaction to understand if you're trying to sell to someone, like you need to be able to answer the question of what's in it for them, right? So I'll even go back to my UConn foundation days where at the time I, I, I didn't know I was selling, but they used to assign me to the like untouched doctor and lawyer lists because as you can imagine, those are people that don't have a lot of time but have strong personalities. I was like, bring it on. And I, I quickly learned early on, it's like, you used to be able to pick the fund that you were calling on behalf of. So if you're calling a doctor, you're calling on behalf of the neonatal intensive care fund because that's what they care about. And that's what's in it for them. And that's maybe why they got into their profession, right? Or for the lawyers, it's like, they don't really care what fund you're calling them on behalf of. But to a lawyer strengthening their degree and continuing to improve the UConn pedigree is something that meant a lot to them. So... I think that applies to HubSpot sales. That applies to to me, my rep. So that's kind of always a question I, I ask myself. I think that's huge. That you know, it's it's always an exchange of something. And I reference this book all the time. But Daniel Pink's "To Sell Is Human." It's like you, no matter what you're doing, talking to a child, you're trying to get them to do chores, a significant other, a friend that you're asking for help on something. You're, it's all a bit of sales and. I think that's really the key is most people are going to act based upon their self-interest. And so if you can really clearly articulate and understand what's in it for them, you should be able to help really tailor your conversation to what, what they care about, which at the end of the day is why they're talking to you probably. I, I love yeah. that. And as you think about moving from the individual contributor role, working across these different channels in HubSpot of channel partner programs, small business, medium-sized business moving into the management and building and growing sales teams for a bunch of years now. What have you seen across top performers or folks that really stand out that are the qualities that you either look for when you're hiring or as you brought somebody in that helps you say, oh, this person's really going to be a standout rock star? I think the biggest thing for me is probably curiosity. And, and that that's really tricky because I don't think you can qualify for it that hard during the interview process, right? 
I'll, I'll give you an example. We just hired a, this gentleman named Carl on our mid-market team. He's a beast. I think he's like second month in the funnel. I see him everywhere on LinkedIn asking questions. And it like it reminds me of what I used to do back in the day. Like that's how I sold when I was on the partner team. It was like, you need to be everywhere. You need to take in all the information. And a lot of times, like I, I think it's the curiosity that drives you to be everywhere, even though you're not necessarily asking questions, right? So to me, I think the curiosity piece is is huge. The other part I love because this resonates with me so much is like. I want to know people's backstory and I want to know if they have a chip on their shoulder or not. Because a chip on the shoulder can drive someone's sales career through the roof. You know, obviously for me, I, I think that's I had a chip on my shoulder that's driven me to to try to be more successful. So I always like to ask people like what motivates you? What drives you? And you know, I've been interviewing a lot of people that were laid off or furloughed due to COVID-19. And I always like to stop the conversation and just say, that sounds tough. Like, how are you feeling about it? And some people are, eh, woe is me. Some people are like, it really pissed me off. And like, I went to President's Club with this company last year, but you're meaning to tell me when they had to do a reduction that, you know, I was not only, you know, I was supposed to be on a beach this month and now I don't have a job. Right. So I, I think like a chip on the shoulder can also help carry someone really far as well. I love that. Any chance you'd be willing to share uh, what what drives and what motivates you? So I I recorded a a video of this for our sales kickoff, but uh, my first sales job in Boston, I actually got fired. You know, I was six months there as a BDR, and I was their top BDR, and they promoted me to an inside sales role, and they said, "Here you go." You know, no training, no nothing, and so naturally, six months later, I think I had sold five thousand total dollars, which is wild, right? I definitely wasn't paying for myself, but it was, I, I kind of knew something like that might happen, but it was the way that it happened that really still lights a fire. I was pulled into a room. Not only did they fire me, but they also said, like, it's very clear to us, you will never have a career in sales. And I was like, whoa, like, <laughs> you know? And I remember I went home and I was like, wow, maybe they're right. And like, you're home in the middle of the day. You just got fired. Like the doubt is creeping in. And I went and I like applied for like a bunch of non-sales jobs. And I remember having initial interview conversations and I was like, this isn't my language. Like this isn't what I want to do. Long story short, I ended up at WordStream 11 days later. So it was the maybe one of the shorter unemployment periods there. But I just like, I knew it. I knew I was home. I never again had that doubt. And I haven't looked back since then. But It's just crazy how a moment like that, that was, I want to say, October 2011. And like, I'm still talking about it here in in 2020. So that's, that's kind of what, what pushes me. And and that's the main driver behind it. It's so fascinating as you just listen to different people's stories and how so frequently there's been somebody somewhere along the way that said like, this isn't for you, you can't do this. And where and the time, it's kind of like a, well, screw you. But now all of a sudden, it's provided you almost 10 years of motivation that's probably been a really key thing, as you talk about it as something you look for when you're hiring, that helps you push harder, that helps you be one of the best in the field, in the company, in the industry as a whole. And so it's, I, I always debate, like, do you need that somebody telling you, no, you couldn't do it? 
to really get you to where you're at? Or maybe do you think you would have found your way there without it? I'm curious, what do you think? I think maybe I would have I would have found my way. I think like you know, the system that I was in with no training, no nothing for like an entry-level person, it wasn't gonna end well, right? And I think I would have found it. I think I may not have come to HubSpot if I didn't have that chip on my shoulder. Because I, I was at WordStream and I was 14, 15 months in and I was slinging with, uh, with Steve Zavosky. We were having a great time. You now we're young, we're partying. It was, it was great. And it, it was the first time I, I went from like, hey, you're getting fired from this job to like, oh, you're a top performer at this job, but you feel like you could go somewhere else that could even accelerate you more. And so like that thinking of like, I think I maybe would have got to where I am without this incident. But what the incident did is it just made me push for more all the time. And in that moment where I was like, now I've tasted some success, like I, I want to I wanna do it on a larger scale. And then that's kind of where, where HubSpot came in. That's super, super cool. It reminds me, probably got to get Mr. Zavosky on here as well. It's a, a good podcast uh, interview. I didn't know you guys worked together there. I actually, when I got laid off twice within six months before joining HubSpot, the other company that I applied to in Boston was WordStream. But uh, ah. ha- happy where I ended up, but funny to hear that come full circle here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> On the flip side, you've hired a lot of people. You've seen a lot of people come and go over your years uh, as a sales lifer. What do you think differentiates where somebody really struggles? Like, what, what are the common challenges you see with folks that come into sales that, whether it's somebody that's new getting into sales or somebody that's been in sales that, hasn't really feel like they cracked the code. What are some of the things that you think they could look out for in themselves to say, oh, here are those skills or qualities or characteristics that are actually hurting my performance? I feel like I say this all the time during interviews and and it, it's, I think, really important, but like people that aren't afraid, people that are, are afraid to fail fast will struggle nine out of 10 times at HubSpot or I think somewhere else because... You know, with selling HubSpot, like the more conversations that you have, the more you're going to run into those scenarios. And suddenly everything starts clicking when you run into the exact same scenario. And now you're moving at a fast pace. If someone is afraid of failing fast, they will not go get those experiences. And they're more likely to be tentative early on, which leads to reduced output and reduced experiences of, of who they're dealing with. So that's when I've noticed is like people talk all the time about how like they're not afraid to fail fast and like, but very few people actually do it. And I think back to like early days at HubSpot, Katie Ingmack was my manager and she's like, why aren't you making more phone calls? And I was like, well, like HubSpot does a lot. <laughs> and I was like, I'm one month in. I was like, I don't know everything. And she's like, well, how are you going to know what you don't know until you get on the phone and people start asking you questions? And I was like, Katie, you... you or a Jedi. <laughs> yeah, um, mind so like, blown. <laughs> but I remember literally being like second week out of training, like calling people, talking about the partner program and them asking me very basic questions I didn't know the answer to. And I realized quickly, like, there's still value here. Let me write down these questions because if they ask them to me, someone else is going to ask me them later and I need to know this. This is important. So for me, I think people that are afraid to fail fast or just kind of jump in head first, like, I think it becomes hard to like ramp up and get experience somewhere unless you fail a little bit. I think that's so powerful and important. And question just popped into my mind, having this experience around sports, being an athlete, being a coach, tennis, soccer, all of these other things. 
Do you see any similarities between top performance and athletes and top sellers? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a good example of it is like, I don't tell my top reps to like read books or better themselves. Like I don't have to do that because they want to do that. I see the same thing with, with the athletes that I was coaching, right? Like practice ends and your top players are still out there hitting serves, still out there getting more reps in. So like, I actually see a lot of, of similarities and a lot of parallels. And I think that's why you see a lot of athletes do really well in sales because like they just, they want to be better all the time. And I think the struggle that a lot of people have transitioning from being college students to full-time working professionals is like work becomes so time consuming that they forget to take care of themselves mentally. They forget to stimulate themselves. Maybe they also forget to exercise, but like, when work becomes all you're focused on and you're all in on it, it's so easy to let your personal development and your personal health just slide away. And I think that athletes will come into something like sales and think, wow, I see a leaderboard. I'm not at the top of it. What do I need to do to get there? Because it's very similar to winning an athletic competition. And in order to do that, they know it doesn't happen overnight. You have to build a foundation. It needs to be consistent. And I think that's probably the, the, the biggest parallel. That's huge. And I think so powerful as you just think about how do you find those resources? How do you hunt out the podcasts, the interviews, the research, whatever it is that helps you be on top of your game or be ready for that moment? And you you mentioned the mental game, which is the thing that I am most fascinated with is what I've found is most of my training in sales has all been about the tactical execution of selling and not about, well, how do you think about it? Not so much as hey, dial the phone more, but well, help me understand your motivation. So you motivate yourself to dial the phone. And so how do you think about the mental game and sales and sports? And what do you do to maybe help yourself be the best? Yeah, so it's funny. My my dad is a, a physicist, but every time he gives me advice about anything, like I find it's really like... He doesn't know anything about selling HubSpot or anything about playing tennis, but can give me advice about meditation or, or visualization that like is really relevant to what I'm doing every day, which is kind of funny, right? So like, I, I remember in high school, he asked me like how my tennis season was going, and I was like, oh, like you know, my forehand's great, but my backhand's bad. And he's like, when you're not playing tennis, he's like, how do you think about your backhand? And I was like, I don't. It sucks. And he's like. Well, if you can't envision what having a good backhand feels like, how are you ever going to hit one? And I was like, <laughs> right? So it's interesting. I think like like sales is the same way you think about like setting goals and like planning out a year versus planning out a month. And like I think for a lot of people, if they don't take the time to visualize what success looks like, how do they know where they're heading? Then they're on like a rudderless month-to-month quota ship and they're like, Okay, at the end of the year, let me look back at how all these twelve months fit together. Versus, as they say on the Peloton, are you are you on a are you on a steady road or not? Right. So I think like like visualization and and planning are something that a lot of people don't take the time to do. Versus, you see the top reps do that incredibly well. They can tell you all their numbers at the drop of a hat. They have a spreadsheet where it's planned out till the end of the year, and they know exactly what they need to hit. So. I know I went on a little rant there, but <laughs> that's kind of how I think about the the mental part of it. I think that's perfect. And would you mind even giving us an example about how you either coach your team 
to, to maybe instill those values or how you think about doing that for yourself as you lead your team? I'm always trying to encourage my reps to like think about everything from a long-term perspective. And it's actually really, it's, it's really different. I, I found um, moving from small business to mid-market, I'm working with more tenured reps that a lot of them have been at HubSpot five, six, seven years. And like, they're also sales lifers and they know that this is what they want to do versus on the small business side. Some people are trying to figure out like, is this what I want to do with, with my life? Right. And so I think like it's easier for me to push my mid market reps on long term planning, on, on visualization, on understanding where they're trying to go, which is really rewarding for me. So like, I'll give you an example. I have a, a you know, Dave Bernstein is one of the top reps on my team. And ever since we started working together a year ago, it's been like, I want to get into management. Right. And all of our coaching has been around that versus, hey, let's do a pipeline review. Right. But he's a perfect example of like, here I am at point A. I'm trying to get to point B. How can I make myself better every single day so that the time the opportunity arrives for for me to get a management job, like I'm going to get there? And he's not afraid to write his goals down. He's not afraid to document stuff. He proactively keeps me accountable versus me having to say, Dave, how are you progressing towards management track? And so that just shows me that he's really dialed in on that. And he's the driving force behind that. Similarly, another quick example, I have another rep on my team who has really turned his performance around. And he voluntarily emails me his activity at the end of the day, because he's, you know, it keeps him accountable. But that's something that he wants to send me. And that's something that helps him visualize these are building blocks on the way to success. There's just a couple of examples there. Those are great. Then part of the joy of doing this is I get to take away ideas that I'm like, man, I, I should probably be doing that as well. Like, that's, <laughs> that is really good. I, I work with a personal coach and a lot of the times it's, oh yeah, he he's asking me to send him things. And I find that I don't do as well as I could be or get as much value from that. Whereas if I was more proactive and, and to pushing myself on my own accountability, it could really be a game changer and really get you that next level. I got I to gotta plug the personal coach thing here because I... Uh, are you familiar with the Valor program? Yep. So Valor, uh, for all our listeners here, is it's a performance coaching program where you are meeting with a performance coach once every two weeks. And then they have a really slick software platform with courses and, and little quizzes and tests you can take to help reinforce everything you're working on with your coach. That's been one of the biggest game changers to my my mental game is having someone that isn't my wife or my boss that can keep me accountable and not be afraid to ask hard questions and generally just have a... I hate to call him... No, I get there. He he does have a uh, a PhD in psychology, but just someone to talk to, to help me with my visualization has been like, help me get out of my head and put things down on paper. So that's just my plug for anybody thinking about getting a performance coach. It's been a game changer for me. So huge, especially as the connection you see to athletes. What professional athlete does not have at least one coach, if not many? And that's one of the things that rocked my world a bunch of years ago as talking to Hunter Maidley dropped this note of like, not just a salesperson, but a sales professional. And if you're going to be a sales professional or a professional at living your own life, even if it's not sales, well, it's probably good to have some outside perspective. Somebody that isn't attached to you performing for them as a manager, because I think a lot of managers are told they're supposed to be coaches, which I think many of them are and can be. 
but they do have their own interests as well where, yeah, they want to coach you and guide you in a, a certain direction. And I love being able to say, how do you invest in yourself and get somebody that's going to be invested in you to really help bring that perspective? And it's really cool to hear your your experience with it, how it's really helped you kind of take that mental game to the next level, because that's to me where champions are made. It's most people can do the job and do the thing, but to sustain it for the long, long term, I think it is really tough. Speaking of kind of sustaining that performance, I had one of my worst sales months ever a couple months ago. And it happens, you know, uh, it happens to the best of us. Uh, And I know you've been on a tear on a real hot streak for a a while now. But when you have a rapper, when you have a a tough performance, whether it's a a deal, a month, a quarter, what are some of the things that you do to try and bounce back and get back onto your A game? Well, I have a, a, a secret tip. So have you ever gotten an email where a prospect or customer is like, Jordan, you have really impacted me or like the sales process was incredible or they're like, they're really singing your praises. You ever gotten one of those emails? Definitely. You save them, you put them in a folder and on the first day of the month, you go through and you read them because it's a reminder that like, this is a snapshot in time. This isn't you, right? Like, and, and I think just like getting that re- reminder that like you are good at what you do is helpful because the next part of it is looking at things like data to understand is this things that are out of, you know were, were things that were out of my control or did I take my foot off the gas and maybe I didn't notice right so like you set yourself up for a big hug with the nice emails but then a little bit of a slap with uh, with the data you're looking at and then another hug with the nice emails but I think just reminding yourself in sales, especially like a place like HubSpot where it's month-to-month quotas, like Hunter always used to say it, like we're playing for the year. But the month-to-month is the short is the short game. We're playing for the year. So I think like, I actually think it's good to have those minor resets sometimes. And if you can get yourself so accustomed to overperformance where your minor reset is like still in the 80 to 100% range, it's a little bit easier. But that's what I would do with someone who misses one month right? Someone like yourself, right? Like you're coming off a rough month. Like, you know, fully well, you know how to sell HubSpot. I know you're great. You know, you're great. But sometimes you need a little bit of a reminder of it. And sometimes just tweaking it up a little bit, I think can help. Now, if it's just several months in a row where someone is having a downturn, then I think it's enlisting a little bit of help from your manager. I think it's getting a little pep talk from a family member or from a significant other and reminding yourself that like you belong here and you're good at what you do. I think that's huge. It's a powerful thing to remember the good times. It's so easy to get stuck in this negative spiral of thoughts that can really just make it such a harder hill to climb back to get to that level of performance that you're trying for. So I I love that shameless self-promotion, I think is uh, (laughs) what Dan Tyre calls that. Uh, email folder and and has been one of those things where it's like, yeah, I want to remember the times that I've gotten praise and that I've gotten thanks and helped transform somebody's life or business because some days are going to suck. And that's okay too, to your point earlier on, because if you're not trying to push yourself, if you're not trying to fail fast, you're not going to learn, you're not going to grow. And I've been getting into mountain biking lately and I just took a couple harder falls than I've ever had in the last few weeks. And as I've talked to some folks that are well more experienced than me, as I'm trying to learn again from others, 
they're like, oh, that means you're pushing yourself. That's good. You know, now, like, let's not break an arm and, like, let's keep them as, like, you know, minor, like, things on your hand and your ribs are kind of hurting right now. Yeah. But that's, again, where you start seeing how do you kind of push yourself to get to that next level? And you're probably going to fall on the way there. So having some of those reminders, being able to have that plan and data like you see from a lot of your top reps allows you to say, oh, well, here's where I just wasn't picking up the phone as much. I wasn't making the phone calls. And I know I can do this. So now you've got that motivation to get rocking. I, I think that's really fantastic advice. One other quick thing there too is is I think like in the sales rep role as an individual contributor, you can often be on an island. You need to have like someone else that you can bounce ideas off of and that is positive. And so I think like that's what's really powerful about the sales culture at, at HubSpot is, you know, a lot of reps they have other people that are going through exactly what they're going through when they have that down month and having other people around that you can feed like positive energy off of is really, really underrated because number one, it's therapeutic to talk to someone about what you're going through. And then number two, they take, take all that in and then they tell you that you're awesome. that <laughs> it's positive. Right. So I highly recommend the, the accountability partner piece. I love the accountability, buddy. <laughs> Couple other questions for you as we round this out. What does success mean to you? Success to me means setting a goal and achieving it, however big or, or small that is, right? So a massive career success could be someone eventually becoming a CEO, and a minor success could be hitting your deal creation goal for the week. But you've heard me talk a lot about like writing goals down and quantifying goals and things like that. And a lot of that comes from the valor piece of it. <laughs> I've not done that all my life, but I've kind of learned like if you don't know what you're working towards, again, cue the, the rudderless ship. So I think like success is having a goal and, and hitting it, however big or small that is. And that's a wide range. I think that's really important to call out because it doesn't have to be a million dollars. It doesn't have to be a new house. It can be, but you can break it down to have these smaller goals to find those little victories that help you know that you're on the path to success. And you talked about goal setting a little bit and working with some coaches. How do you set your goals? What process do you go through? How do you think about it? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a fusion of, of, of smart goals and then some coaching that I, I, I got from my Valor coach. His big thing is like, okay, tell, tell me what your goal is. So I, I, an example I'll give is before all this COVID stuff, like I was working on increasing my tennis rating. And he was like, okay, like, why is that your goal? And I'm like, well, I want to play in more competitive tournaments. And he's like, why do you want to play in more competitive tournaments? And I was like, because I used to be really good and I'm not as good now. And he's like, why is that important to you? And then, so he got so deep into like peeled back so many layers that like, it was like, I equated a lot of value with if I could get back to how good I was at tennis in, in college, I'd get some sort of validation. It was just really interesting. And, and we ended up kind of reframing my goals. And we ended up thinking about like tennis as a form of exercise versus thinking about tennis as a, you know, a, a college athlete. And it just made my mindset healthier. And also as I was competing in tournaments, matches, things like that, like, it was just less pressure on me. So I think for me, it's like, figure out what your goal is and then ask yourself why five times and peel back all the layers because in order for you to hit the goal, you need to understand why you're doing it. And if you can't, the amount of times I couldn't answer the why question for my coach was appalling. 
And that's why I think it's a, it's an interesting exercise to, to go through with someone. That's great. It's so funny is so much of coaching I find is also really good selling. Just asking those five whys to your prospects is yep. such a great sales skill to learn. Yeah, uh, I, I love that. That's a great example on the goal. And then reframing is such a powerful thing that I learned through a bunch of places. Seth Godin's Alt MBA is probably where I spent a lot of time with that. And man, oh man, can it help you see things in such a new light? I, I love that advice. You're gonna have to to send me a, a list of, of some books and some articles. I want a little knowledge share going on here. Well, that was actually one of the things that I was going to bring up. I'm so glad you touched on books because, again, as you talk about qualities of top folks, I remember I was talking to you a while back about NLP, uh, mm-hmm. Neuro Linguistic Programming, and you'd recommended NLP for sales to yep. me. And this is, again, where I think that mental game I was never trained on that. I never understood it on the power of your language. And I'd just be curious how you think about NLP in relation to sales or maybe give it a a quick synopsis uh, for folks that are listening that aren't familiar with neuro-linguistic programming. The best way for me to sum it up is that if you're my prospect and I'm selling to you and I don't truly think that you're going to buy, I'm going to use language that leads you to not buying. Now, on the other hand, if uh, you're my prospect and... I'm envisioning the finish line and that is you becoming a HubSpot customer. I'm more likely to use language and even body language that that suggests that you are headed towards the path of buying. And that's a very simplistic way of, of thinking about it. But it's how I've always summed it up is like, you, you can almost speak things into existence if you do it the right way. That's how I think about NLP. So it's a lot of like, you know, am I using language that is going to drive a certain outcome? I've seen that with you know a rep who is selling a deal at the end of the month that needs that deal to hit their quota versus a rep who's been over their quota since the 10th and everything else is gravy. And you see the difference in their language, guess who closes the deals? It's the rep that's already over, right? So that's kind of how I think of about NLP. It's a very non-scientific explanation of it, but it just shows you like your language matter your, your, your thoughts matter and they impact each other. And it's good to be aware of how your language is impacting the people that you're interacting with as well. It's huge. I love it. That definitely will we'll reference that book in the show notes for people as you think about the language that you use and how other people interpret it. I know when I've been in the desperation mode, my prospects smell it. They can tell even though we're just over the phone, maybe even not on video. Yeah. The words you use, they, they just know it's there. I think that's powerful. Yeah. Do you love winning or hate losing more? I think I think I hate losing more than I love winning. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one. I've been asked that one before. I think that's why it matters so much to me to cross the 100% line. And I also think it's I'm watching myself shift a little bit so like I I hate I hate losing, so I want to hit 100%. But when you think about overperformance, you need to start loving winning as well. So it's kind of a catch-22. But I think for me, overall, it's more important to me to not lose than it is to, to win big. How about, how about yourself? <laughs> it's so funny. I, I think you nailed my thought process on there as well. I've been asked, and I ask that question to a lot of people. And for me, I love winning more then I hate losing because I have tried to reframe losing as learning opportunities. And so if I'm okay with failing fast, if I'm okay with that piece, 
then I think going after the win is a little bit more fun or rewarding where I can also feel the reward from the loss where it's like, okay, what can I improve on? What can I take away and really kind of bring that growth mindset to the table? But it's tough because I think the failure or the losing is one of those things that drives that motivation so much more than going after chasing a dream, you know, getting fired and told like, you're never going to do this is probably a bigger motivator than your parents saying, oh my gosh, Tiki, you have so much potential. You can do anything you want in the world. Yep. Yep. I'll put it this way. After having two big months in April and May, I wasn't analyzing our team data. But then I we had a, a near miss in June. And then suddenly on the first, I'm like looking at deal creation. I'm looking at KPIs. So it goes to show you, I, I guess the I hate losing is definitely greater for me to be loving of winning. So it's interesting. I, I think that's huge. Yeah. And the last question that I have for you is you've had a chance to work with so many different leaders over the years, be in leadership roles yourself. What are some of the qualities that you look for in the best leaders you've had to work with or some of the things that stand out to you? I've been lucky to work with a lot of great leaders at HubSpot. I think the biggest common characteristic I see amongst the leaders that I find myself gravitated to are leaders that have the same, if not a higher level of self-awareness than myself. Right? I think people, people I think of that come to mind, like Ryan Beal. He's the he's the most self-aware person. He, he knows what's going on at all times. And I think like you have a leader like that, you know, leading your segment through this this COVID time, like it goes a long way. Like rarely, rarely does Beal make tone deaf statements and then come back and be like, oh, I misread the situation. You know? I I think I think Hunter was another leader that was that was like that as well. And then I'll go the the the, the other big characteristic I like is, is leaders that aren't afraid to challenge the status quo or, or challenge you as a leader, right? Like I think I think a, a, a James Stone is a good example of that. If there's something that's going wrong or going awry in my in my process, like he's constantly looking at ways to improve that. So it's it's kind of interesting, but those are probably the two biggest ones for me because you don't want someone who is just going to look you in the eye and say, yeah, everything you're doing is great. Then you don't progress at all, right? And then on the self-awareness front again like you you just want someone that can read a room can read you know understand the vibe that a large group of people are sending their way so that they can fight for you to set you up for the best success and i think like a like a beal does that really well that's a really cool one and, and unique from what i've heard i can't help but ask one question around how do you build self-awareness or how do you coach folks to do that Whew. that's a tough one <laughs> You know what really helps with that though is Gong. I can't I can't speak more highly of Gong, right? Because I think a lot of the time, you know, I don't have enough time during the week to jump on all my reps calls by any means, right? But Gong has made it really easy for me to to listen to the call and do a call review and pause it and really just kind of say, "What did you hear there?" and then play their reaction and and say kind of now that you're a fly on the wall, what would you have done differently? Like Gong is powerful for me because I think the self-awareness piece, like most people at HubSpot are self-aware in their day-to-day, but there's a totally different self-awareness when it comes to customers and it comes to active listening and like truly hearing what someone's saying and reading a room properly. And as we move into selling, you know, multiple hubs and multiple stakeholders and selling the C-suite, if you don't have that self-awareness, like 
you're out the door, right? So I, I think that gong and like listening to calls and putting yourself in uncomfortable situations where you have to hear your own voice at the end of the day is a really great way to kind of coach to self-awareness. What a great tool to use to be able to go back and just as much as professional athletes use film review, same thing for sales professionals. I think that's a, a great way to build it and learn. Well, Tiki, thank you so much for sharing a bunch of unbelievable nuggets of wisdom that I think so many people will take away as they think about building self-awareness, as they think about being comfortable failing and failing fast and getting out of that comfort zone, set goals, plan for the year, really be able to track how you're doing. There's so much in here that I can't wait to share it all in the show notes. We'll link to your LinkedIn profile so folks can reach out as you're always hiring. And maybe that we can start seeing some folks that are curious as they start poking around it and being everywhere as well. So thank you again. Until next time, let's go crush it. I love it. It was a blast. Thank you. 